Paul writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Father, we come to one of the classic passages on the doctrine of salvation. And this text is important for two groups of people here this morning. It's important for the Christian. We need the gospel every day to incite us, to provoke us, to to stir us to awe and to good works so that we might love you more and so that we might love our neighbor more. But this passage is important for unbelievers as well. And there's some here today, I believe that. I pray that as they hear this passage preached, the veil would be removed. I pray that they could behold for the first time their need for a Savior and that they would see Jesus as the Savior and would believe. We ask this today for your son's sake. Amen. An headline earlier this year caught my attention. The title of the article was, Georgia teen who got donated heart dies in a crime spree. Anthony Stokes, in 2013, needed a heart transplant. Uh, He was 17 years old at the time, and he desperately needed this heart transplant or... He would die within six to nine months. Initially, he was turned down for the heart transplant because of rebellion, behavior issues, and because he had defied doctor's orders. And so the hospital turned down his request for a heart transplant. Well, it was a scandal nationally. It uh, grabbed the national news, and, and finally the hospital relented. And they decided to give this young man a heart transplant in part because he had committed to turn over a new leaf when he got his new heart. Unfortunately, he did not make good on his promise. And on, in March of this year, he went into an elderly lady's home and shot at her and sought to rob her home. And then 
uh, was chased by the police as a result, and he crashed his car in a high-speed chase, and he ultimately died from that crash. When I saw this article and read it, it reinforced for me that we as sinners, and that includes all of us, we as sinners don't just have a behavior-oriented moral problem. We certainly have that, but that's not what's most fundamental. What's most most fundamental for us is not this behavior-oriented moral problem. It's a heart-located awe problem. In fact, that's behind the moral problem. And there's no new resolutions. There's no turning over a new leaf. Indeed, not even a physically new heart, a physical new heart can change the heart-located all problem. That's the irony with Mr. Stokes. What we need is more than just a system of reform or a commitment to resolutions. What we need to change that heart-located all problem is a Savior. We need a Redeemer. And we have one. The grace of God has appeared. We saw that last week, didn't we? Bringing salvation to all people. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, righteously, and godly in this present age as we look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. We have that Savior. And it's this grace that saves us not only from the penalty of our sin, it's that grace that provokes us, that incites us and grants us the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power to adorn the gospel of God our Savior in the church. That's what he was establishing last week. We saw a couple of weeks ago that we had that responsibility in the church to adorn the gospel with each other. This is what we would call edification. We need to be edified, and that edification comes corporately. If you are not involved in corporate life, trust me, something is wrong with you spiritually. You need the people of God. We need to be edified in order for us to persevere in the faith. And we must persevere in order to be saved. Not that you can lose your salvation. It is God who keeps us persevering, but we must persevere. And one of the means by which we persevere is mutual edification. But we also have that responsibility to edify one another. And so when this grace comes to bear, it provokes us. It stirs us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the local church. But now Paul's going to address another reality. We have the responsibility of edification, that's chapter 2. But we also have the responsibility of evangelism. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the world. That's chapter 3. 
What Paul is concerned with here is our witness. He's concerned that we bear witness to unbelievers of the reality of God's transforming grace. So that the unbeliever himself or herself might be awed by that very gospel. And that's why the recipients of the gospel have stewardship responsibilities. Indeed, they have obligations that come with receiving that gospel themselves. That brings us to the first part of chapter 3, the obligations of the gospel. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, keep in mind, this is Paul's exhortation, Paul's encouragement, Paul's admonishment to a pastor on how to instruct his church on how to adorn the gospel in the midst of a culture that hates Jesus Christ. In the midst of a pagan culture. And in this particular case, it was a Roman culture. A Roman culture that would make false accusations, and they did, against Christians because of their exclusive understanding of truth and the gospel. Now, I find it counterintuitive, maybe you do as well, that when he's talking about the world here, what he emphasizes first. He emphasizes submission to rulers and authorities. Now, here's the question. Who was the authority of that day? It was Nero. And I think in the providence of God, uh, it was so because... There may be some bad administrations the people of God have to to live the Christian life under. But this was the all-time bad. Nero was one of the most evil men in the history of the world. He was the emperor of the day, as Paul writes that. And do you remember Pilate? The whole government was corrupt. Do you remember Felix? Felix sought to... Uh, to draw out a bribe out of the Apostle Paul when Paul was in prison? Or do you remember Festus who, who denied justice to the Apostle Paul? The entire government was corrupt. And Paul is saying, you submit. Now, what's Paul's burden there? Well, he's more concerned with the progress of the gospel than he is politics. That's the issue. He realizes that politics are a necessary evil in a fallen world. And he recognizes that government can restrain evil or it can promote evil. But he's more concerned with the progress of the gospel. He doesn't want Christianity under suspicion as a counter-political movement. You see, when we, we refuse to submit to the authorities over us, earthly authorities... We are unwittingly communicating that our hope is in the present world. And Paul is concerned about their witness. Notice what he says. He says, be submissive to the rulers and the authorities. Christians are not anarchists, okay? We're not anarchists. We, we don't sabotage. We don't disobey the government. 
unless it leads us into conflict with the Word of God. That's Acts chapter 5. And even then, our disobedience is passive, and we willfully receive the consequences of that disobedience. Uh, he says as well, he says to be, um, to be obedient. Contextually, this is like a general conformity to the regulations of the civil authorities. Now, other texts, and that's another time, another day, but other texts will help us navigate through how to respond to corrupt government. But here, he's more concerned about our witness. So he's speaking about this general conformity. He says, be ready for every good work. That phrase, ready for every good work, is found eight times in Paul's writings. You think that's important? Ready for every good work. In fact, he has used it most recently in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, we saw this most recently. Titus was actually written before 2 Timothy. But we saw this most recently in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul writes, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. We know that Jesus is the master of the house, ready for every good work. And then in 2 Timothy 3, he said that Scripture is profitable to prepare the, the man, the woman of God, to equip them for every good work. Now, what is every good work? Well, it's not just social action. There's lost people that do good social deeds in the community. Good work is essentially work that is spawned, energized, generated by the gospel itself for the gospel. It's by the gospel for the gospel. It is the work of Christ for His name. So you can do a lot of good things in your life but if the goal behind those works is not so that Christ's name might be made famous, it's not a good work. And remember, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's the same phrase, to do good works which God has prepared for us to walk in them. In other words, it's the good works of the gospel. We're gospel people. And the good works that flow out of that gospel is intended to make Jesus' name famous. You'll be held accountable for that. What did you do with your redemption? What did you do with the gospel? Did the gospel prepare you for every good work? That's what Paul is saying in here. And we have responsibility before a lost and dying world with these good works. Now, in verse 2, he's going to continue to lay out these gospel uh, obligations. In verse 1, essentially we see that when the gospel comes to bear on a sinner's heart, it, it produces a submissive spirit. But not only that, when the gospel comes to bear, it produces a kindness of speech. Look with me in verse 2. He says, to speak evil of no one. Now, in the context, he seems to be referring primarily to the civil authorities, the governmental authorities. Now, if that doesn't, if that doesn't uh, in, convict you, uh, let me just tell you the preacher is convicted. Um, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
Um, to speak evil of no one, when, when uh, you speak evil of no one, what that does is it commends the gospel. And the reason it commends the gospel is only the power of the gospel can change our tongue. We are by nature, Romans 3 says, those who have the poison of asp under our lips. Okay? The way of peace we do not know. And so it is much more natural for us to slander, to be negative, to criticize, to gossip, than to speak words of affirmation, speak words of edification. And so... When our tongue has been transformed, that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. He says as well that uh, to avoid quarreling. Literally, this means to be uncontentious. Do you know uncontentious people are, are contentious people? I think you probably know more contentious people than you know uncontentious people. Uh, this is the rest of soul that has experienced the shalom of God. Shalom is that word in Hebrew that is picked up in the New Testament for the word peace. The Prince of Peace comes to bear on a contentious heart, a heart that is filled with unrest, not rest. And, it, and then what happens is the shalom of God comes to bear and changes that person's heart. That's why a Christian must not be quarrelsome. It has to do with our witness. It speaks to the reality of the gospel. When we're quarrelsome, it's false advertising. It is to bear false witness against our Savior. We're saying, when we are quarrelsome and contentious, we are saying, as Christians, that Jesus' finished work and the work of the Spirit is not sufficient. To change me. It's to bear false witness against our Savior. Notice as well, he says to be gentle. To be gentle. Literally, this is the word for kindness. A Christian should be characterized first and foremost as a kind person. And then he says to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That word courtesy is a word that was used in that day of a thoroughbred that had been broken. So it has the idea of power and strength under control. And when a Christian communicates that, it is a powerful witness to the lost world. It has an impact on the secular world. As I reflecting on that, I was thinking about some words that New York Times colonist David Brooks, who, by the way, is a secularist. He is a secular Jewish person. I was thinking about some words that he uh, said of the great pastor, theologian, John Stott, a few years back. John Stott has since died. I think he died a couple of years ago. But he was talking about the fact that John Stott is a unique Christian in that he is very convictional. But his conviction is matched with kindness and gentleness. Now this is a secular Jew taking note of an Orthodox Christian who is very outspoken in his beliefs. And here's what David Brooks said of John Stott. 
He said, Scott is so embracing that it's always a shock, especially if you are a Jew like me, when you come across something on which he will not compromise. He's so embracing. In other words, he's, he's kind, he's gentle, he's embracing. And yet it shocks David Brooks when Scott comes across an issue on which he will not compromise. Here's what he said. It's like being in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, except he has a backbone of steel. Isn't that something? I hope Mr. Rogers didn't read that. But it's like being in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, except he has a backbone of steel. He does not accept homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. And of course, he believes in evangelizing non-believers. David Brooks being one of those. <clears throat> and all of this to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, as you read those seven virtues that we're called to in verses 1 to 2, you may be thinking, Brian, you don't understand my situation. I'm in a pretty difficult place. I'm around some really secular people, okay? And it's really hard uh, to submit to our government. Maybe those are the things that you're thinking about, okay? That's why verse 3 is so important for us. We've seen the obligations of the gospel. In verse 3, we're going to see the necessities of the gospel. And here's why the gospel is necessary in short. This used to be us. The world that we're called to witness to, to, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior to, used to be us. That's what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves... Now, who's ourselves? Well, he's referring to him, an apostle. He's referring to Titus. He's also referring to the, uh, the older men in Titus 2. The older women, the younger women, the younger men. I think that pretty much covers us all. We ourselves were once foolish. <clears throat> that word, foolish, does not mean we were ignorant. There are people with very high cues who are very bright and accomplished in various disciplines, very educated, but who are foolish. Literally, it's someone without understanding, someone who is senseless, in the things of God. Uh, someone who is unable to discern the things of the gospel. Have you ever met someone that way? They were bright and, and educated in every area. But when you started talking about spiritual things, they looked at you with a glazed look. Foolishness. You see, sin dumbs. And that was us. That was me. And that was you. We were once foolish. He says we were also once disobedient. 
sin dumbs, but sin also disobeys. This is disobedience to human authority. That's the context. But it's also ultimately disobedience to divine authority. Disobedience rejects the rule of God over my life. It cherry-picks the aspects of Scripture that we will obey. Everybody has a crutch. This is one little area I'm not going to let Jesus have lordship over. Sin disobeys. He says as well, notice, we were once led astray. Sin deceives. It dumbs, it disobeys, and it deceives. It deludes. It's to live in a world of unreality. And behind that is demonic forces. 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. That was you. That was me. That's what sin does. You ever, do you know someone in your family or someone in your sphere of influence who just continues to make one foolish decision after another? It just does not make sense to you. Well, that used to be you. That's what sin does. Sin also dictates, notice he says, uh, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, we are a desiring people. We, we were created with desire. We were created with passion. That's what it means to be the image of God. But we were created with these desires and passions for worship, vertical worship. And what's happened is that instead of worshiping the true and living God, we fixate on the created order. It's what counselors call inordinate desires. Okay? Desires that are enslaving desires of, we could say, ungodly things or even good things that have become ultimate things. Sin has this uh, dictating effect on us. That was us. That was us. Notice as well, he continues to describe us passing our days in malice. Sin detests. It's much more easy to think negatively of someone than to think positively. And for the unbeliever, that's what he or she is enslaved to. And that used to be you. That used to be me. As well, he says, we're enslaved, passing our days in malice and envy. Sin desires. Sin desires desires. You look at someone who has something that you feel like you have to have in order to have significance, in order to have happiness, in order to have identity, and you envy that person. That's coveting. That's a reflection of misplaced awe. You've set your hope horizontally rather than vertically. That used to be us. That described us to the core. Sin is also what it does. He says it divides. Hated by others and hating one 
another. Let's sum this verse up. Foundationally, fundamentally, we are lawbreakers. But perhaps even more consequentially for us, we are awe breakers. We are lawbreakers because we are awe breakers. What does it mean to be an awe breaker? It means that we have another God that is not the true and living God. We are in awe of something that is not God Himself. That was our state, that was our condition. And all of the behavioral issues that flow out of that is a result of our misplaced awe. Paul is saying, you don't think you can be compassionate? You don't think you can be loving? You don't think you can be long-suffering and understanding with unbelievers? You don't think you can have that witness? That used to be you. That's what he's saying in this passage. But for the Christian... And this is important. That's a picture of what we once were. It's not who we are. Now, there's still embers of the old men that are still present. The old man that is still present in all of us. But that's not who our identity is now. It's not who we are. But how can that be? When you deceive the description in verse, verse 3, how can a person... Change. How can a person be transformed from what we see in verse 3? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. In verse 3, we see sinful man active without God. Starting in verse 4 all the way to verse 7, we see a saving God active without man. So we've seen that the gospel has obligations. We see why the gospel is necessary. Now we see the origin of the gospel. Look with me in verse 4. He says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This reminds me of two of my favorite passages in Scripture. In Romans 3, Paul has just indicted the whole human race. He summarizes, he summarizes it this way. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. Uh, they have become fundamentally unprofitable in their lives and way. He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles, moralists and immoral, pagans and religious people. And he says, now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. He has just indicted us all. Bad news. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. But by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, has been revealed. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you love that? But now. That was who you were. But now. Paul in Romans 3 is attempting an all rescue. Are you dull in your walk? But now. 
In Ephesians 2, he says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world, the ruler of the air, the kingdom of the, uh, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We were by nature objects of wrath. He's talking about us. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. It is by grace we have been saved. Paul is seeking an all rescue. And that's what he's doing here. Are you dull in your walk this morning? Do you see what Paul writes? Verse 3 was us. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's beautiful language. This word loving kindness. Let me give you the word in Greek. Philanthropia. It's where we get the word philanthropy. When God's loving kindness appeared. Now this word appeared, we've, we saw it used twice last week, didn't we? The grace of God has appeared. We saw that the grace is bound up in a person, Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for the day when the glory of God appears in the blessed hope of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Here, he says, the loving kindness of God has appeared. And how has that loving kindness, how has that goodness of God manifested itself to us? That brings us to verse 5, the means of the gospel. Now, let me just say, verses 4 to 7 is one sentence in the original language. Be a great, great sentence for you to memorize. Are you dull in your walk? Is the gospel bore you? Memorize verses 4 to 7. And then stare at it until you behold the glory of God in it. That's what he's doing here. And notice the whole sentence centers around the main verb. He said, the grace of God has come to us. It's appeared. He saved us. He saved us. This might be the most comprehensive statement in the entire New Testament, the entire Bible on salvation. He saved us. You go, well, how do I know Christianity? There's so many religions in the world, Brian. How do I know Christianity is the one true faith? Well, let me just say this. There's much you could say here. It's the only religion in the world that's a religion of salvation. It's the only religion, religion that recognizes who God is in His infinite holiness and His standard. It's the only religion in the world that recognizes the sinfulness of man and the total inability of man to please God. It's the only religion of salvation that could be summed up this way. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He saved us. I mentioned John Stott earlier. I love John Stott. And one of my favorite 
words by him. He came from his book, The Cross of Christ, where he is reflecting on our salvation. What Paul just declared to us, he saved us. And here's what Stott said. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. We saw that in verse 3, right? While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's verse 3. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, while God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. How does Christianity differ from every other religion in the world? Substitution. We need a Savior. And God has provided the Savior in the substitute who has accepted the penalties that belong to us alone. And when God saved us, He did not take note of any of our works. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Do you think that you can dismiss the grace of God because in the day of judgment, He's going to look at you and all the effulgence of your glory and be impressed. Paul says He will not take note at all of any of your works done in righteousness. Why? Because anything we can even do that has any nobility behind it is all of grace. It's like my children at Christmas who borrow money from me to buy me a gift. It won't be by our righteousness. It will not be our, by our deeds. It will be mercy and grace in toto if you are saved. And of course, he tells us here, that it's by means of washing. I love that. By the washing. Are you filthy today? There is no sin too dirty for the washing power of the Holy Spirit. You don't know my past, Brian. He justifies the ungodly. He saves us by washing us. Messy sinners get clean not by washing themselves. You can't do it. Have you ever heard someone say to you when you were sharing the faith with them, well, I just need to get my life right and then I'll get back into church. You can't get your life right. You can't wash yourself. If you're going to be clean, if you're going to be washed, it will become it will come because of the mercy and the grace of God. This washing isn't through literal waters. This is spiritual washing. It's clear here. It's the washing of regeneration and renewal. Regeneration is a word that's used only two times in the New Testament. Now, 
The concept is used many times. For instance, the, this picture of resurrection. We're, we've been raised up with Christ. Even when we were dead, God raised us up. That's resurrection picture. That's, that's regeneration. Or when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's, that's regeneration picture. Or, or when he talks about being born from above, John chapter 3, he speaks to Nicodemus. That's a picture of regeneration. But the word regeneration is only used twice. Here, in chapter 3, verse 5, and Matthew 19, verse 28, where it's translated in the ESV, the new world. I love that. The new world. In the, in the regeneration of things. What does that tell us? There's coming a day when the whole cosmos will be regenerated. All right? Born again, if you will. And every foe will be vanquished in that day. Death, sorrow, pain, suffering. It's the regeneration that we hope for. But phase one of that regeneration project occurs through spiritual regeneration where we're born again. Bert Nation professed faith in Jesus Christ. He was spiritually regenerated. One day he will be physically regenerated in the resurrection when God regenerates the earth. Okay, this is phase one. Phase one prepares us for phase two. But you must experience the regeneration of phase one in order to enter phase two. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. If you aren't born again, you can't see or enter the kingdom. The kingdom is just another way of describing that day. You see, we've been washed through regeneration. You know, regeneration is an instantaneous act. You're not progressively regenerated. Now, before you're regenerated, God may be preparing you for regeneration. You can't get away from Christian people. You can't get away from the Word. It keeps pursuing you everywhere you turn. Okay? Uh, but when you're regenerated, it happens instantaneously. It's also supernatural. You don't regenerate yourself. It is a spirit-wrought regeneration. It's the Spirit who does it. And it's also radical. It is a radical regeneration. Now, what do we mean by that? It's holistic. It affects the whole person. We're renewed intellectually to now comprehend the things of God. We're no longer foolish. We've been regenerated intellectually. We're regenerated volitionally. That is, our wills are regenerated to now pursue kingdom things, eternal things. Okay? We're, we're renewed and regenerated morally. Where we no longer have these enslaving passions. We're regenerated relationally. Where our relationship with God is restored, our relationship with each other is is restored. We are regenerated emotionally. Okay? Where God fixes, God restores those disordered affections. It is a radical regeneration. 
and He regenerates and He renews. Renewal being the fruit of this regeneration by the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Here's what the Spirit does. He comes as the paraclete for Jesus. He is the other helper. He comes to mediate the ministry of Jesus to our hearts. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. And the Spirit mediates His prophetic office, His priestly office, His kingly office. Here's how it works. Before, you were not convicted by your sin. You rationalized your sin. Okay? Every once in a while, you might feel guilty, but it was not a vertical guilt. It was just a subjective guilt. You weren't convicted by your sin. And then the Spirit of Christ came to bear on your heart, and He mediated the prophetic office of Jesus, and He convicted you of your sin. Just like the prophets did in the Old Testament. The Spirit began to show you that you are a lawbreaker, that you're corrupt. And you begin to feel the weight of your guilt. And then the Spirit mediated Christ's priestly office. How does He do that? He says, you are a sinner, you're a lawbreaker, but there is a Savior. There's a great high priest who went into the to the Holy of Holies and made the ultimate sacrifice for you. He made atonement for you. And so the Spirit directed you to Christ the priest who made atonement for your sins. And so in your guilt, you turned to Jesus and all the guilt of your sin was placed on Him. He was punished for your guilt. And then Spirit comes and He mediates the kingly office of Jesus. He, what does He do there? He gives you the power to overcome your sin through regeneration. Through regeneration and renewal, you now have been regenerated and renewed to obey God. That's what Paul is saying here. It's through the Spirit. And then we come to the ground of the gospel. And there's too much to say. So we're going to close it here. And one of those rare times... I'm going to cut off a sermon halfway through because there's too much to say and we'd be here at 1 o'clock. My kids would be mad at me. But this regeneration and this renewal has a grounding. And let me just tell you ahead of time what this ground is. He doesn't just save you because He is merciful and He shows amnesty to you. He saves you through a substitute. Okay, that's the ground of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see next week. The debt has to be paid. He, he is holy, he's infinite in his holiness, his justice. The debt has to be paid. He has to be God. But there's a way he's provided where he can be both just and a justifier. And it's going to come through his son, Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here, he is seeking to restore the awe that was lost at the fall. He's seeking to restore the awe so that you will exalt in God your Savior. So that you will delight in Him. So that you will find your pleasure, your hope, your identity, your significance in Him. He is seeking to awaken you from your spiritual slumbers so that you might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
a lost and dying world. Let's pray.